Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors now. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the contest? Go ahead. Make my day. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's brand new episode of Black Hole Cinema with your genial host Tony Black. This week is a special episode which will be focusing on Godzilla, the brand new Gareth Edwards take on the world's greatest movie monster, which we will be discussing, myself and the guest I'm about to introduce in a few minutes, the history of and reviewing the movie itself between us. So... It'll be interesting because my guest is a big Godzilla guy and I'm a fairly newly minted Godzilla guy as a newcomer to the franchise. So it'll be interesting getting a few different viewpoints on that and seeing what we make of it. Before then, I'm going to kick off with the usual segment of the show in which I do the UK, the current UK top 10. And I'll be picking through and seeing how things have changed at the cinema from last week. So... Beginning at number 10, we have a new entry, which is Frank, which is, of course, the take on the Frank Sidebottom legend without actually being a biopic with Michael Fassbender as this band member who wears a massive inflatable head. And it's very, very surreal in, in, in terms of that. I haven't seen Frank, unfortunately, because it didn't get a wide release. I think I mentioned before how, unfortunately, it wasn't on at Cineworld, which was a bone of contention for me. And I haven't, unfortunately, been able to see Frank, but I've heard fantastic things about it. So as soon as I get the opportunity, I will be going. But Frank has made a little bit of a stab into the box office. It was never going to do... It wasn't, it wasn't on that many screens, so it was never going to do a massive amount of business. But it's nice to see that it's broken into the top ten, where some films this year, such as The Raid 2, Blue Ruin, films like that, films that deserve to make some money, haven't. So it's good to hear that Frank has actually come out and made a few quid. So I've heard, like I say, many great things. At number nine, dropping three places from number six, is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Finally heading into top ten oblivion, Captain America, after seven weeks on the charts. Still making money, not nearly as much, because the showings will be a lot less now, But and uh, this will probably be, I imagine, its last week in the top ten, or or very soon it will shift out anyway. It's done, it's done good business. 
Over here, it's made nearly 20 million altogether. And of course, it's a hit, it's a global hit. It's about 700 million worldwide now, Captain America. And justly so, because it's a great Marvel movie. At number eight, another new entry La Cenerentola, a Met Opera. And once again, another example of theatrical performances coming onto the big screen in cinemas and making quite a bit of cash. I think I think a lot of these come out on Thursdays quite often in, in the big in the big cinema screens and or Tuesdays, midweek normally. And you they obviously fill up quite a lot of uh, screens. Probably because it's cheaper to go and watch this performed on the big screen as opposed to actually going into the theatre and seeing it live. You know, there's a massive dis- disconnect between the prices. So it could, it, that's probably a big reason why people do it. And obviously they get to see it in, in their own cities and things like that. So again, interesting. I've no, no idea what it really is, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's, you know, liked by a lot of people. And number seven, another new entry, Sabotage. This is the new Arnold Schwarzenegger thriller, I suppose it could be called. It's about as thrilling as watching a brick wall, but... Yeah, it's in there. It's made some money. Not much. Hasn't made much of a dent. It could well be in the top ten for a week or or more. Just slightly more. It won't last very long. It's not... Considering this has got Arnie in, and Arnie used to open movies, you know, ridiculous, ridiculously high, it's it's very poor. It's a very poor showing. And it's on enough, enough cinema, so it's done very badly. Quite understandably, because it's a horrendous film. It's awful. It's got no merit whatsoever. Even Arnie isn't much good in it. So I'm glad to see that Sabotage has done as badly here as it has in the US and because it's it's rubbish. And number six, down two places from four is Tarzan. Again, I haven't seen it. Again, it's one for the kids, but it's done decent business. It's not done too badly. Um, that will continue to drop, I suspect. And number five, down from number three, dropping two places is Pompeii, which... Hasn't done that much, really, Pompeii. It's done maybe slightly less than I thought it might, actually. And it's a shame, because Pompeii actually deserves to do better, because it's not actually a bad film at all. You know, it's, it's like I've said before, it's daft as a brush, but it's quite knowingly daft as a brush, and it looks quite good, and Kiefer Sutherland is brilliantly stupid in it, and it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So it's a shame, really, that hasn't topped more than... It's just it's done a bit more than two million. And it, it'll still be in the top ten for a, a couple of weeks, probably, but it, it, it will probably continue to drop. So, check Pompeii out if you haven't already. At number four, actually rising a place this week from number five is Rio 2, which is still hanging on in there. It's done very well. It's made closing on, in on 15 million. It's not far off that. And it's, uh, it's continuing to make money. Again, the kids... It, it could still be lingering around during next week's half term as well. So, it may still uh, linger for that, even though the next two weeks are really going to be dominated by uh, Godzilla and... X-Men Days of Future Past but Rio 2 may still be hovering around at number 3 down a place is The Other Woman which sadly isn't sinking into the hellhole it deserves to be in quick enough it's made 7 million still doing pretty good business and it's still really depressing to hear because it is abominable so that that will that will drop a bit now we've got the two big hitters coming in I imagine but it's still going to be lingering like a putrid smell for a few weeks unfortunately down a place, finally unseated from number one spot after a good few weeks there, is The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which has done very well. In in almost half the time of Captain America, it's made more than that film. It's made over, to over 20 million. It's still doing very well. It, it will do well. It's Spider-Man, as I say. As I say, the film itself polarised me. It was good, but not great. It had a lot of things wrong with it. It was worth a watch, but it's not nearly as good as the last one or 
um, the second Sam Raimi film. So, it, but it's done very well. Uh, it didn't it hasn't done great domestically. It's it's not really blown everyone away in America. I think box office wise, as they thought it might, but it's done well overseas. So it's still on for about six hundred odd million. So it's still it's still a hit. It's still it's still made its money back. So. At number one, then, a new entry, inevitably, it's Bad Neighbours. Now, I talked last week about how Bad Neighbours was going to have this monstrous opening weekend because it had had a cumulative gross of, of two weekends and a full week. And understandably, that's why it's made $8.5 million in one in one week. And it is, to be stressed, that's in one week, not one weekend. So it's a false figure, really. If it, if it, if it, had, been, if it had debuted and done as it should have done, it, it, it wouldn't have made that amount of money. At once, so but it's still done. Free, it's still done well, though. It's still done very well to make that much in one week. And again, fairly justly so, because it is quite funny. It is quite a good comedy. It does deserve. It does deserve to um, to do well. And uh, I'm glad to see it has. I think it will be unseated by Godzilla next week. I'd be very, very surprised if it didn't. I think Godzilla will stomp and romp away for at least next week, if not the week after. Although it is going to have a big challenger snapping at its heels with with X Men: Days of Future Past. So. It will. This will shift a little bit over the next couple of weeks, but that's currently how it stands at the top of the tree. So we'll see next week how much it has changed. So let's move on because it's monster time. Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's now time to get on with the main thrust of the show, the Godzilla special. Uh, I say that with a slight Japanese accent, which doesn't work. But anyway, I say that was my Ken Watanabe impression, I think. With me today is someone who can probably do a far better Ken Watanabe impression because he is the king of the monsters and the man who is a go-to encyclopedia for Godzilla. Welcome, Mr. Lee Crimes. You see, you just took my thunder away then. I was just about to do that. It must be Godzilla. But you, uh, you, you did it first. Okay, so right. You, let's you just ruin my intro now. But the, I hope you're happy. The beauty of this, however, is that it's a podcast and I can edit. So let's do that again, shall we? So you can do your line. No, it's it's fine. I'll leave you with your, you know, your slightly racist joke earlier, and, and we'll just we'll run with that with the intro from now. Ah, uh, okay. So you're happy for me to come across like a racist? Always. Okay, fine, great. Um, <laughs> I now understand our friendship. Yes. Well, welcome, Lee, and thanks for coming on to discuss. Godzilla, and I thought we'd start by you, before we get into talking about various different things like the history of the of the franchise and obviously building up to the point where we're going to review the brand new Gareth Edwards film, I thought we'd start yeah. with you talking about why you love Godzilla, what it is about this franchise and this character that appeals to you so much. I think the thing that everyone loves about Godzilla is that it speaks to the inner nine-year-old in all of us that loves to just see giant monsters duffing each other up and, and raising entire cities to the ground just because they feel like it. Mm. But then at the end of the day, the it's kind of like almost like playing with your toys. The uh, playing field is just swept clean. Tokyo is rebuilt just in time for the next movie the following year and everyone mm. just goes back to normal. It's as if all the events and destruction and mayhem that you just saw being caused didn't actually happen. And so as a result, it's got this great kind of repetitive, familiar, but at the same time sort of refreshing and ever-changing outlook on things that depending on the state that the monster's in on any, any given moment you've sometimes you've got a, a guy who's like a friend to humanity who'll just kind of muck around with us and stomp along and be all cheery and do little kind of strange highland fling dances 
Other times you've got a guy who's a raging kind of 200 foot tall behemoth who just turns up literally to smack the crap out of things <laughs> and wander off. Is it then a quite quite a staple of the of the films going back decades where there's no real continuity? When I mean, you said about how they just rebuild, you know, Tokyo every film, do, is there no? Do they follow on from each other, or is there no real continuity in how they how they work? The very first movie, the '54 Godzilla, is followed by a sequel, Godzilla Reigns Again, but it's people don't really follow it that much because it's it was just a very hastily produced cash-in sequel. All the films after that, um, from like this, I think it was, oh, what was the next one? I think it was, it was either Godzilla Mothra or Godzilla King Ghidorah onwards. Kind of follow on from each other a little bit in that Godzilla is a familiar character, but that he's the only thing that carries over from one film to the next. It's always a different kind of cast. It's always a slightly different setup. It's not until you get into uh, the eight, the one movie that they did in the 80s, Return of Godzilla, that is a direct sequel to the 54 movie. Mm. And then when they started to get in the 90s, that little series of half a dozen films all kind of follow on from each other a little bit. So you do get some repeating characters up till um, 95's Godzilla Destroyer. And then after that, there's a five, four or five year gap until what's known as the Millennium series, which starts with Godzilla versus Spirulante, who's basically a giant angry plant monster thing. <laughs> and that little series of films, again, there's a bit of loose continuity, especially a, a couple of them do follow on from each other, but the idea for those for the most part is they would each take the original movie as their jumping off point and then they would be a direct sequel to that with a new story and a new cast of characters. Some of them are just downright weird. Some, some of the movies in that series are the best of the whole run of, of the movies whatsoever. So it's kind of, it's, it's a yes or no question, answer really, that in some cases, yes, they do follow on from each other. In some cases, no, they take the opportunity to just be a completely separate individual story each time. That because I it's interesting to to look back at these and to do a bit of reading about them and to see how in terms of modern standards of what we consider you know making films how sequels are made and all this kind of thing it's totally its own kind of construction isn't it the Godzilla franchise it totally just does all kinds of different random wacky things so it's quite fascinating and I I intend to go back now and watch the whole of the whole lexicon if I can if I can get them all over time because I, I watched the nineteen fifties the 1954 original just the day before I went to see the new film and it, it really impressed me actually even though it's 60 years old and obviously it's dated in terms of effects and things like that it's still really quite a powerful film in what it's trying to say and what it's you know even though it's a B-movie monster trashy monster film it's it's somebody commented that it, it feels almost like a film noir in the way it's shot and the the scenes of Godzilla just tearing apart Tokyo with this fire breath are really quite you know, it is like watching, as they intended, it is like watching a nuclear holocaust unfold in front of your eyes. Well, did you watch the Japanese or the American version of um, Godzilla? I watched the Japanese one, but there's a difference, isn't there, between between the two? Not a huge difference. The, the American version, in order to make it kind of more palatable for American audiences, who, as you can imagine, by 1954 wouldn't really have flocked to see an all-Japanese um, yeah. dubbed movie, yeah. if it was like a movie as good as that. They filmed a lot of scenes with Raymond Burr, who went on to be Ironside in the 70s, yeah. acting as kind of a reporter in Tokyo at the time of the attack. So it, it, it's actually, it's worth watching even when you've seen the Japanese version because of it's surprisingly clever the way it all fits together. They filmed some extra scenes. They've managed to get some of the Japanese actors in to help film some transitional scenes. Ah, okay. There's some moments where they cut in scenes from the original movie as if it's the other half of a conversation that Raymond Burr is having with these <laughs> same characters. 
But I think it's got that strange kind of way that really old, early films of that style, because the effects were so sort of lo-fi and cheap, they end up actually working together in a really seamless way that would be a lot harder to do these days. It's just part of the magic of filmmaking, really, as to how effectively it manages to work. But it's a pretty seamless experience throughout, really. They put a lot of effort into it. They film quite a lot of additional footage for it, and it really works on its own as a more accessible version of the same film because it doesn't have the same dark, oppressive tone that the Japanese version has. But it still does feel like you're watching basically a disaster movie that just happens to be taking place in another country. It is very dark and oppressive, isn't it, that first film? It is very... There is, there is the odd moment of levity in there, like with the, um, the girl in it, because she's a bit kooky and a bit ditzy. But it's very, very much a powerful anti, anti-nuclear message, isn't it? The whole That's thing. That's where Gareth Edwards' movie um, does the same kind of thing, I think, as we'll discuss in a minute, that it's little moments of levity, little cutaways to other random scenes of things happening to give you a little chuckle and to kind of make you realise, yeah, I am actually watching like a monster movie before then turning back up with the seriousness and, and the threat of things. The uh, 71 movie, Godzilla vs. Hedera, is a similar kind of style, really, even though in the 54 original, that's more of a metaphor on um, the atomic age and the you know the destruction of Hiroshima and other kinds of things. The 71 movie is the, the creature that's basically a gigantic smog monster. Um, this creature that gets formed from, uh, I think it's kind of radioactive sludge in terms of this massive, like, grey monster thing that goes stomping around Tokyo which in that instance is used as a metaphor for, um, like, pollution. And, you know, Japan and Tokyo in particular is having a real problem with smog and heavy fireworks and um, pollution at that point. Yeah, it it makes a lot of serious points about, um, you know, how pollution and everything else was affecting um, the country at that time through the metaphor of basically, you know, Godzilla representing nature, fighting this man-made... thing, which again is something that ties into Gareth Edwards' movie, and mm. I think it's, the themes of all the good monster Godzilla movies seem to have been carried across into uh, into the new film, that's what for me made it such a, a strong film that I think a lot of people who don't really watch those movies and then went to see this wouldn't really have, have gotten it, which is maybe why, where some of the negative reviews of it have come from. As you say, we'll get, we'll get into that a bit more later, yeah. but just tracking back, was the 54... 54- Godzilla, or the, uh, the the American recut, was that the first Godzilla film you ever saw? Was it the one that got you into it, or was it a later film, or where did your passion begin for it? I've been trying to think of it I think it was in the early 90s Channel 4 had this season where they showed like a stack of the, uh, the classic Godzilla movies, mm. so the sort of 60s and 70s ones of an evening. I think it was it was like bookended by these um, host segments by the guys who did this amazing um, film review show called Vids. Mm. It was like late night Channel 4, really low budget. This tall Scottish guy and this mad Welsh guy who just reviewed all the <laughs> latest uh, film releases of that week. And they did all their really kind of jokey segments introducing these films because it was the more campy ones like Godzilla vs. Megalon and Gigan and all the kind of the, the 70s ones. And I think it was that batch that I, I would have seen first. So anything from kind of the, the awfully titled Invasion of the Astro Monsters which is just a <laughs> strange film um, through the brilliant Destroy All Monsters then up to the late sort of 70s ones which would have included Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla which is just awesome any way you want to slice it so uh... I've, actually, I've actually heard a rumour that Gareth Edwards if he does a sequel to the new Godzilla he's interested in adapting Destroy All Monsters as, as the plot 
Destroyal Monsters is a really good, solid um, plot, mm-hmm. but it worked better at the time because um, it was able to basically be a... Uh, it was the Avengers of the Godzilla franchise. <laughs> Toho had spent about 15 years making all these other monster movies with all these different characters, and then they just brought them all in for one big smackdown against... Um, it's Godzilla and about eight or nine other monsters against King Ghidorah. Mm. They would have got Gamera and other kinds of ones in there if they could have got the if they could have found a way to make it work properly. But I think I don't think Gareth Edwards would go for that one straight away because he'll want an, at least another film to establish more monsters before doing something like that. Mm. He'd be better off going for like a Godzilla or one of those kinds of stories as his next wrote out. I think. Well, it's it's interesting as well looking back. And all these, and I'm looking at all the titles of these films now, going back to the 50s, and it's things like King Kong versus Godzilla, and oh, you know, God, that's that's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Mothra versus Godzilla, and you know, invasion of Astro Monster, like you say, and, and all, all these things. Does it become in the end where it's basically Godzilla as the the lead character? in these movies you get a few humans obviously around but is it basically a guest starring monster each film is that is that kind of the way it works and then ultimately you know like in Destroyer Monsters they all come together and stuff but is, does that become the pattern really of the films and it's just Godzilla cage match against you know whoever ultimately yes I think in the, the 60s and 70s movies the Godzilla was a bit more of a family friendly thing so it was very much he was the protector of Earth and he just didn't like anyone coming up and you know messing up his turf basically and he'd come stomping along and smack some bad guys up often they use the plot quite often of um, aliens controlling monsters and making them go bad or something like that happening in the 90s from from Return of Godzilla onwards and then the 90s movies it was a bit more ambiguous he wasn't so obviously humanity's pal you know Godzilla Mm. it was more just he was this big old pissed off dinosaur who didn't like other monsters and if they ever turned up (laughs) <laughs> he would just come swimming out the depths and smack him around a bit. And then in the 2000s movies, they played with that a bit more and made him even more kind of ambivalent because he was a bigger, darker, more dangerous character. The 90s Godzilla was still a bit of a holdover because there were a lot of kind of kid-friendly elements to it. Particularly in the 90s ones, there was this baby Godzilla who grows up over the course of about four films and eventually in the 95 movie where that era's Godzilla basically has a nuclear meltdown and blows up. Yeah. The, the junior Godzilla from at that point kind of grows up to become the new Godzilla and I think it's implied that he's the one who then carries on into the, the next round of movies but yeah. yeah it was essentially they had all these other monster movie franchises going and they just decided that he was the star of them but because they were cranking out these movies so rapidly like pretty much a movie every year mm. um, more or less the same creative team but they'd be less than an hour and a half long so it was just a very quick and easy way to churn these things out really here's some people here's a monster Godzilla turns up they have a fight at the end it became quite assembly line in the way they were cranking them out at Mm. first so the same pattern every film basically in terms of it ended up being a bit like that yeah that's why the 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 best batch of movies which is the uh, the millennium era one so that's sort of 99 to 2004 they kind of mix it up a little bit and try some different things with it so they're quite interesting ones but in the, the purest set of them is the 90s movies they're the ones that you know distill down the here's, here's your sort of human character plot here's a big monster here's Godzilla they have a fight they get that in a really nice sort of well produced mm. slick form of it without any of the kind of kid friendly a Godzilla is our pal of the uh, 70s movies do you think that they change 
in terms of reflecting the era that they're in. I mean, obviously the first Godzilla film in, in 1954 was very much, like we say, this anti-nuclear message, this reaction to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and all those kind of things. And, you know, the fear of the bomb. Did that carry on into the into the fifties? Like you say, it got a bit more camp as as it goes into the sixties. And obviously, the sixties the sixties ended up being you know a much more lighter decade for a lot of films, didn't it? And and then and then into the seventies, there was a lot of kitsch stuff. So, did it represent that maybe that desire to get away from the terror of of post war years? And did it become a bit more like you say, over the top and camp for that? I think that's one reason for it. The other reason for it is obviously that Godzilla became such a popular character that they couldn't really keep making those, those, they didn't feel they could carry on making those kind of darker films because they wanted a Godzilla who was very, you know, family friendly and that's that's where the money was coming from mm. that unfortunately led to awful movies like Son of Godzilla which is just terrible or Godzilla's Revenge which is, oh god, even worse um, <laughs> if when you're doing your epic rewatch of the series, which I can obviously help you with because I think I've, I've got pretty much every movie on DVD at some point, that'd be great <laughs> those are the two that you'll struggle to get through the most but they are mercifully but also the shortest of the whole thing <laughs> and when you get past that then it picks up a little bit mm. I think the idea of, of Japan as like a an industrious hard working nation who just seem to keep having these tragedies hit it is and also their ability to rebuild and reconstitute and carry on after that that's something that comes across the themes of it I think as I said that that one oddball 70s movie um, with Hedera where it was the uh, metaphor against pollution and, and industry and everything else I don't think that did as well as the others because people did prefer to have the campy monster fight ones but that's one of the reasons that in 75 they kind of canned the series for 10 years because movies like you know Star Wars and other sorts of things were on the horizon and they weren't really connecting with audiences because they didn't have anything to say anymore mm. that's why in later years it became you know, Godzilla's this thing that represents a force of nature who just doesn't like what we've done with the planet. Mm. And then it was, it moved on to, we've done bad things to the planet and created, you know, all these monsters and things have happened. And Godzilla is just this amoral, um, ambiguous thing that just turns up, cleans up our mistakes for us, does a bit of collateral damage along the way and then slinks off again in a kind of, I'll fix this, before. I've cleaned up your room, now don't do it again. Kind of sense. Which very well, much. We always do do it again. <laughs> yeah, and which very much obviously is something the new film, as we'll talk about, takes and runs with. It's interesting to, to look back at all these and think about, and from what I've seen and from what I've read already, and see the, the development of it all. To the point where I believe I read that in after Godzilla Final Wars in 2004, which was the 50th anniversary, wasn't it, of, of the Godzilla franchise? That is such a bonkers film. That really is the strangest thing I've ever seen. Well, they, but after that, they, they decided they weren't going to make any for 10 years, didn't they? And they yeah, just... they, they, they did another thing like, like they did after um, Terror of Mechagodzilla in 75. They just went, right, we've got as far as we can with this template for now, so we're just going to leave it quiet for a bit and see what happens. Mm. And what happened ended up being Gareth Edwards taking over the movie. Yeah, because Toho apparently sold the rights to Legendary Pictures who made the new Godzilla with a few caveats in that part of it was that it had to be set in Japan or partly set in Tokyo. They were, I think they were just stung by the 98 Godzilla experience where they just said to some Americans who came along and said, oh yeah, we love Godzilla, we want to make one of your sorts of movies. And they were like, well, well, okay, you can do it. But unfortunately, they liked all the really, the, the bad side of all the 70s movies and made something that was more closer to that than the, re- the very good, more modern 90s movies that Toho had just been producing. So I think that's why it took them 15-odd years to uh, get around to agreeing to let anyone else 
playing with their toy box. Well, that's a neat way of, of moving in to talk about the 1998 Godzilla, actually, which, of course, was directed by Roland Emmerich, who'd, see, who'd previously done Independence Day, Stargate, and he's, you know, he's known now for being the guy who makes these sometimes, sometimes quite good, like Independence Day, sometimes quite hilariously dumb like 2012 which will always be a fondness in our hearts I think Lee, won't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so he's he's obviously quite a polarising guy and he's quite a schlocky Irwin Allen of the modern day in a way Roland Emery he's like a more family friendly uh, Michael Bay I think yeah yeah like, yeah yeah. Michael Bay's a bit more of a dude bro kind of director with yeah. some pits and guns and explosions very much the Jerry Bruckheimer of yeah. uh, this generation I think Roland Emmerich Devlin and Emmerich are kind of a bit more between the two they like to try and appeal to more more people and be a bit more out there with their concepts yeah and so them taking Godzilla was you know at the time I remember I mean I remember this I was you'd be about 18, 19 and I was about 16 so we, we remember the build up to this and I, I mean you would have been probably very excited I was excited even though I'm not a big Godzilla guy from the history of it I've always liked the character so I was excited to see it and I think I think they made an absolute total mess. Now you you've got a slightly different opinion on it, haven't you? I'm always an apologist for the '98 Godzilla movie because uh, on its basic level, it's you've got to look at the kind of film that it's trying to be. And, and as we'll discuss in a minute, I think this is where a lot of people have come up with critical views of the new movie. The '98 Godzilla movie was trying to be a slightly kind of tongue-in-cheek, campy monster movie. It wasn't trying to be a, a dark metaphor against, um, I don't know, mankind's destruction of the environment. It wasn't really trying to be any kind of deep spiritual thing. It was just, we've created a big monster and it comes on the loose in, in America and then, you know, we have Tim plucky scientists and that trying to fight to stop the military blowing it up. And it, it, it portrays their Godzilla in, in quite a lot of good ways. You know, it, there's obviously the fact that it has kids and gets a bit pissed off when those kids get uh, killed later in the film and goes on a bit of a rampage. It's very smart. It keeps outwitting the people who are trying to lay traps for it several times. So it's, it's in no way represented as a big dumb monster. It even plays dead and pretends to have been killed just so that it can eat a submarine that's been chasing it. <laughs> I think a lot of people took issue with the the logic holes that are in that film. And there's quite a lot of them, mainly the fact that Godzilla is able to hide, which for mm. something that's 200 foot tall and going around the middle of New York, and then he's able to just disappear yeah. because it's apparently tunneled underground. You're like, that does stretch it a little bit. Yeah. People might have noticed a 200 foot tall bipedal lizard sort of digging through the subway system. <laughs> but okay, well, it's that kind of film. It, you, you've got to allow the humour of it. Like, they're the really slightly racist but at the same time slightly fun joke about how all the French agents who were there to sort of help the cover it because it was their nuclear testing that caused this Godzilla in the first place all, all being called like Jean-Pierre Jean-Claude you know? <laughs> <laughs> they all they learn their English from Elvis movies so they all chew gum all the time and speak with really yeah. like pronounced accents it's, it, it's slightly racist but at the same time it's, it's also quite fun so it's it's got that kind of feel to it Matthew Broderick is the kind of wide-eyed, slightly cheesy scientist trying to have his own sort of romance in the uh, the middle of it and reconnect with his reporter girlfriend. It's, you know, there's moments when it goes a bit Jurassic Parky when the, the protagonists are stuck in, um, oh, it's Madison Square Garden, isn't it? And mm. uh, all the baby Godzillas have just happened to be chasing people around and managed to get through doorways and jumping on guys from, from out of corridors. That, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. And 
you could argue about it not being high art that the character story in the middle of it's quite kind of simplistic that it's it's quite cheesy and it's quite kind of tongue-in-cheek and a bit silly and and everything else but my point back is that's exactly the kind of movie it was trying to be now sometimes you can try to make that kind of movie and it goes horribly wrong i.e batman and robin Mm. which just went so far the other way that it just became a, a complete mess back to finish which again is is the problem that I've had with um, the most recent Spider-Man movie that has tried so hard to be a certain kind of thing that it's just gone overboard and, mm. and blown to chops with it. But there are moments in the '98 Godzilla movie because I, I went to see this at the cinema, I think at least a couple of times. Yeah, that are genuinely thrilling and exciting and kind of just fun to see these big lizard running around smacking things up. The fact that it doesn't have anyone to fight other than like the military. I think maybe put a few people off because they wanted to see some kind of monster smackdown. And when, you know, when that Godzilla does get killed by getting, I think he gets caught on a bridge and some fighters just blast him with missiles until he dies. The film does take a moment to sort of show him dying and it be a bit actual, like quite a tender moment because it's, it's in the 85 Return of Godzilla movie, they, they somehow managed to trick that Godzilla by luring him into an active volcano I don't quite know how he manages to be lured into an active volcano. It's been a while since I've seen that one. It actually ends with all these guys like in a control room watching Godzilla fall into this volcano and everyone's just sobbing because even though this monster's just turned up and trashed their city, they are aware that they've just basically had to kill this completely unique, incredible being and they've had no option but to kill it. And there's even this really sad song that plays over the end credits and there's a sense of melancholy about what they've had to do and only for like a brief moment in the 98 movie it, it addresses that as well where you've got all the American sort of soldier dudes cheering and like going yeah America in the background there's a moment for Matthew Broderick to walk in up to the dying monster and you know make eye contact with it and there's a moment of oh they just they, they killed this brilliant thing mm. how dare they mm. you know all he wanted to do was just like feed its babies and you know have them take over New York and make that its own nest I mean what's wrong with that mm. we don't need New York <laughs> I think that's quite an impassioned defence. I, I, I'm quite impressed, really, that you've managed to pluck that much goodness out of out of something so awful, really. And I, I think I, I know I enjoyed it more when I was the age it, when it came out when I was 16. I, I remember enjoying it more then. Although the, the the main things I remember from it were really the time music, the Jamiroquai Deeper Underground, and mm. um, P Diddy's sacrilege of cashmere <laughs> um, <laughs> which both came out but it's just it's one of those films that I think I think I think personally just just went too cheesy went too over the top it was terribly written Dean Devlin has since come out and, and admitted that his script was awful and, and a big proportion of the blame needs to be laid at his door for this and he said if I, if I could do this film again I would do it very differently so it will yeah, be. Yeah, I think he's probably seen monster movies that have come out yeah. since then and thought to himself, ah, oh, I should have gone that direction with it. Mm. But it's not an awful film. It's not an awfully made film. It's just, I don't know what people were expecting from it, but I think it, it was the kind of film that it was trying to be at the time. But I think maybe since then everyone involved has realised they would have maybe done it a little bit differently. It did at least give us two good things. One was the awesome cartoon tie-in series that was... It was like the 70s series given like a, um, a modern, really slick update, and it was brilliant because that actually was like a, a big ass Godzilla fighting different monsters every week and was totally awesome. Mm. And then the other one is a really comic scene in Final Wars where the main Godzilla fights basically the American Godzilla who. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. ...known by two real names. Um, either Gino, Godzilla in name only, which is what all the really annoying fanboys like to call it, uh, in that in Final Wars is referred to as Zilla. Right. Actual Godzilla has a fight with Zilla in Australia, um, throws him into the Sydney Opera House and then blows him up. <laughs> which is just a little scene that was thrown in to keep the Japanese fans happy because, you know, they just... But they they never really forgave America for for ninety eight Godzilla, I think. Yeah, no, I don't think they did, did they? And, I, and the question the question really to, to you is: Was that ninety eight Godzilla tonally? Was it? Did it connect with the previous you know Japanese Godzilla films? Did, do you think that it was intentionally trying to ape things that had been done before? Or because obviously it's nothing like the original fifty four one at all. But do you no. think it was trying to? You know, ape the, the the later stage, the sixties, seventies, eighties ones, to a degree. Or do you think that it was just trying to be its own kind of cheesy blockbuster? I think it was a cheesy blockbuster version of the seventies Godzilla movies. Yeah. I think the nineties Japanese ones we just had were similar in terms of their sense of scale and destruction. They're a lot more kind of carefully set up and laid out. There was a fairly kind of rigid formula that each one played out to. Mm. But the difference there is that in in the American Godzilla, you had um, this thing that was just a big monster that had just turned up looking for a food source because it wanted to have its babies. It was a bit more of a, a bit of a benevolent creature, really, who only really attacks when the Americans start shooting first at it. Whereas in the the um, Showa series, the, the 90s ones, that's a Godzilla there who just keeps to himself, and then when something shows up that he doesn't like, he just surfaces and stomps inland, beats it up, and then starts back out to sea again. He doesn't really... You know, humans just don't really register to him. Hmm. Um, but he's got no other motive in those instances except for removing this thing that he doesn't like the look of. Hmm. So it was a very different like mindset behind the, the the creature in each case, really. And I suppose that's Japanese audiences hated it because they just had those really good '90s movies, which played them out in that way. And then this American one comes out a few years later. That's a throwback to the '70s movies that they'd kind of moved beyond at that point. Yeah. Whereas in this country, I think. I don't really know what audiences at the time were expecting because I, I just remember being quite surprised by how much everyone slagged off that 98 movie at the time because I thought, well, God, guys, Batman and Robin has just come out. That is an appalling, badly made film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. deserves yeah. Every, every bit of critical scorn that was heaped upon it. And I'm like, this, there are much worse movies than that one out there. So that's why I always stick up for it. It's interesting, though, when we're talking about you know, and, I, and we mentioned uh, Dean Devlin would have done it differently. Since then, we've had over the last ten, fifteen years, we've had quite a raft of of films that have been Godzilla in all but name, or have tried to be Godzilla, or have taken elements of Godzilla, and have had a lot of inspiration from from these films and tried to do their own thing. The biggest, the biggest examples, really, that I can think of, the biggest two in recent years, are probably Cloverfield and Pacific Rim. And I know there's, you, you mentioned before, you mentioned Super 8, I believe, didn't you? And, um, and there's also Monsters by Gareth Edwards, mm. who did Godzilla, even though that's not a traditional monster movie in the same kind of sense. But 
how much do you think that these films have intentionally I mean, tried to you know, be a modern day Godzilla reinvention without the name? And do you, do you think they've been successful? Well, they all have. There's also a Korean movie called The Host that mm. came out that was um, just about this family who get caught up in an event with this weird big monster thing emerges from um, a lake in sort of downtown Seoul, I think it is, where like a company's been basically pumping illegal waste into the, the, the river and it's created this, this big monster that comes running around. That's quite a kind of small-scale uh, monster movie, but still a very good one, even if it does have a really weird, ambiguous ending. Mm. I think... Cloverfield was definitely trying to be um, a modern Godzilla movie, and I think that had a massive influence on how uh, 2014 Godzilla ended up turning out. The idea of keeping things at street level, having the monster basically be something that's going on in the background that you don't really get a proper look at very often. I think Monsters has the influence of just how the rest of the world would deal with something like this happening, the sense of sort of scale of it and how the ordinary people in the century would be affected and then Super Ace again is just trying to take that sense of just some big uncontrollable thing splashing around and no one knows what to do with it but putting a bunch of people in the middle of it whose lives connect with it in some way and their lives are forever changed by their impact with it I think just because it's been it's such a part of the overall cultural DNA of of you know Western and Eastern civilization by this point, in much the same way that pretty much everyone knows what you're on about when you mention Star Wars or Doctor Who. Mm. Godzilla is just one of those things that everyone's heard of or knows something mm. about at some point. So it's just seeped into the DNA of so many different kinds of things. Pacific Rim, I think, was the closest attempt by someone to make their own kind of Godzilla movie, even down to the the creatures in it being known as kaiju. Yeah. But then, obviously, that took a more sort of Saturday morning cartoon approach to it with you know, giant monsters, giant robots smacking giant monsters using battleships as uh, baseball bats. <laughs> that, that kind of more fun way of uh, approaching it. So Gareth Edwards' Godzilla is the closest to, I think, the original movie and then the last half dozen movies in its sense of tone of, like, Godzilla's not like your, you know, cuddly, cheery champion of, of humanity. He's just this big, pissed-off dinosaur that turns up when he doesn't like the look at something, smacks it up, and then goes back to sleep. And if you happen to get in his way while he's doing it, well, that's your own fault, really. Yeah. It's it's interesting how I've read... I mean, I've, I've read over the last few days some incredibly polarised reviews of this new film. And one of the things mm. that... Uh, which I think is, is frankly absurd because I don't, as we'll talk about in a minute, I don't see how you could think this new Godzilla is, is a bad movie. I don't understand that at all. But one of the things that I've noticed is that there have been a section of people who have said, if you liked Pacific Rim you will not like this new Godzilla film. And if you like this new Godzilla film, there's a good chance you won't like Pacific Rim. Now, I've not seen Pacific Rim yet. It's very, very, very soon on my list to watch. But do you, do you, do you see what that means? Do, do you get what that means in terms of what they're trying to say? Are they trying to say that Pacific Rim and maybe some of these other monster movies are doing something that this new Godzilla hasn't delivered? Or do you think it's just a, a, a stupid argument, really? I think the main reason that it comes from is that everyone was expecting this new Godzilla movie to be built around Godzilla fighting the big monsters. And it's not. And that's the point of it. And I think that's what a lot of people have missed with it. Pacific Rim is built around... The, the, the human story in that is a much smaller element of it than it is giant robots fighting giant monsters. That's the, the thrust and point of that film. Hmm. The thrust and point of this movie is the human story going on underneath it. It's about, like... You know, a guy trying to 
follow in his father's footsteps and prevent another disaster from happening. He's trying to make up for mistakes of other people. He's trying to reconnect with his, you know, his family in the middle of it all. It's that's as a lot of people said, that's the the weaker element of the story in a sense because it's a very simplistic story. But I think the fact that so much of the monster on monster fights in Godzilla is happening in the background or just out of frame, people felt quite frustrated by that. Mm. But back in the even in the seventies movies, and it's a, a formula that carries over into the nineties films. As I said, there was that very strict sense of you have your opening segment, you might see uh, Godzilla for a minute, and then he'll disappear for a while while the human story plays out. And then the last kind of third of the film, sort of 25 minutes or so, is just like the monster fight. And, mm. and, and it's all, that's all there is. Mm. And what a lot of Godzilla fanboys and other sorts of people might be struggling to accept is that that wasn't always that interesting to watch for that long. It was more fun to have short, concentrated bursts of cool fighting rather than, I mean, oh, there's one. Um, it's it's no it's because a lot of the early movies have American and Japanese titles. It's either Godzilla versus the Sea Monster or Ebera Horror of the Deep, which is mm. a mid '60s one. Yeah. Which at one point was trying so hard to find something in the fight to, to do that Godzilla, who's fighting what is essentially a giant lobster, ends up playing <laughs> basically volleyball with it. Where they're smacking his boulder back and forth at each other, like accompanied with some really nice jangly kind of surf music because they're just desperately trying to find some way to pad out the monster. <laughs> And, and it's better to have like a few because I think there's maybe about half a dozen main beats of monster fighting in the new one and each one of them something awesome happens and that, that's all you need you don't need like a 30 minute sequence with a few bits of something good happening you just want the good stuff and that's where this one delivers completely rather than having a big drawn out fight that just goes on for ages and but you're just getting so fatigued by the end of it you're not really able to enjoy it anymore yeah well that I think neatly cues us up to lend our thoughts on Gareth Edwards' new Godzilla. Gentlemen, you are being sent in via Halo Jump. Now, I realize not all of you have had hands-on experience. And frankly, none of us have ever faced a situation quite like this one before. not be asking any one of you to take this leap if I did not have complete faith in your ability to succeed. Your courage will never be more needed than it is today. Lee, why don't you then, continuing on with your strand, why don't you go first and tell us if you loved it, why you loved it, and what experience you got out of it? Because this arguably has to be one of your most anticipated films of, well, forever. Pretty much. I think it, my, my feelings about it got summed up in, in the very first moment when you get your proper look at Godzilla, when the, uh, the male Muto is smashing up 
Hawaii, Honolulu Airport, mm. and airplanes are kind of bits of airplanes are blowing up and landing on another one's exploding across the field, and suddenly these big thuds into view. Even the the crowd of people at the airport who are busy screaming at exploding plane just go silent yeah. when this massive pour just thuds into view. And it pulls back. You get your brilliant shot top to bottom of Godzilla in all yeah. his big scary pissed off glory, and then he does his iconic roar at the camera. I actually got chills and yeah. goosebumps both times I saw it. It was stunning. That, that was a stunning and moment. Oh god, it's just like this is giving me everything I could want. Yeah. Can I, can I just quickly interject and just say, yeah. for the purposes of people, we're going to assume that you've watched Godzilla, okay? And we'll, 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 we're going to talk about stuff that happens in this film. So if you haven't watched Godzilla, I suggest you skip this and you maybe come back to it later. But just, yeah, spoiler. Spoilers. Okay. <laughs> carry on, carry on. So, yeah, from the start, you get that nice, quite sort of tense sequence at the... Uh... First in the, the dig at the Philippines and then at the power plants, which is kind of building a sense of foreboding. The 98 Godzilla did this with, um, you know, Roderick's scientists being brought out to investigate the uh, big monstrous footprints that were going up. A lot of the Godzilla movies have this slow burn intro where it's like something foreboding and creepy is starting to happen. Mm. A lot of people have said that the movie kind of wastes um, Juliet Binoche by only giving her quite a small role, but in a way... It, you know, Brian Cranston's role in the film doesn't turn out to be that big. Mm. And in the same way that, um, slightly off, off topic, there's this um, album that I've just picked up that's uh, by this, um, this cool Canadian um, artist that I know who brought in this very, very talented drummer, but to just play very simple kind of shuffling country beats behind the music, knowing that this really good drummer would bring a really nice degree of subtlety and, and finesse to the, what was actually a very small drum part. Mm. And that when you cast good, talented actors in small roles, you give them the freedom to sort of say, right, you've got maybe five minutes of screen time total, but you can just absolutely sell your heart out in those five minutes. And it's fair to say that, you know, Juliet Binoche's role is very memorable in it as a result of that, because she does pour a lot of, you know, feeling and emotion. You, you find yourself being like you care for the fact that she doesn't make it out of the first sequence of the film. There's, there's an interesting fact there that she and and Brian Cranston both signed on for the film based on that scene where they're together in the reactor and she's about to die, and he's obviously you know full of tears. That and that, and that was written by Frank Darabont, who did a pass on the script, and mm. he he added. Well, it's not been specifically said, but he, he was said to have added some very emotional beats to it, and it was it was that a scene he wrote that sold Binoche on that small part and Brian Cranston on, on his part. So it was, you know, in terms of the actual emotional side of the film, that was probably one of the best scenes, if not the best scene, in the human sense. Yeah, I think it kind of continues on that vein, really, that it's all built around sort of, you know, just little moments throughout, really. You can argue that uh, Elizabeth Olsen's nurse gets a little bit um, wasted in the kind of token female world who just gets to run around looking a bit panicked waiting for people to come back yeah, yeah. it is a flaw that, that she could have been given something a bit more kind of proactive to do because she doesn't really get to, she doesn't really even really get to do a lot of actual nursing no um, which would be um, something to throw into it which is a trick they also try to do with um, Aunt May in the new Spider-Man movie where she's she's there helping people who are being affected as a result of what's happening in the devastation but you know Liz Olsen doesn't really get to do a lot of that either. Mm. But then as the film progresses past that, that opening segment, you get, you know, the, the sneaking through the ruins of um, the powers, of the, the evacuated town for the power station, which is very The Last of Us with all of mm. its overgrown vegetation and 
ruined uh, civilization. Um, your first kind of proper monster mash moment when the big cocoon at the ruin of the power station pops and that massive cockroach-like thing comes out. It's mm. just, ah, oh, it's just awesome. It's it's a really nicely designed monster. It looks sort of terrifying and intimidating, but there's a sense of logic to the biology and and uh, evolution of the thing. And um, you know, as it's sort of slopping and jumping around and, and flapping all over the place, you you are sort of thinking, this is like a really cool monster. But, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm I'm invested in seeing what happens with this thing and where it goes from there. I think I think that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have expected the the, the communal garden get paying public. I don't think they would have expected more than one monster. Actually, quite a lot of people. Mm. And so for it for it to for them to introduce another monster before Godzilla, I thought I thought that was interesting. Actually, choosing to do it that way, really. That's the form. That's that's the classic form for how these things are introduced. You show what Godzilla is going to fight first. Normally they'll have one little scuffle and then go their separate ways, which is exactly how this film plays out, with that really nicely pitched cutaway to the little boy watching yeah. it on the, uh, on the news. That was great. And just yeah. shots of the fight happening on the TV screen, which again is where some people might have felt frustrated that they wanted to see the monsters smacking down at that point, whereas I was more, no, that, that's perfect. But that, that gives it that kind of disaster zone, you know, watching it happening, unfolding on Sky News kind of feel, rather than it being in a just throwing the monster fight in your face straight away. It gives you more of a sense of anticipation for when you are actually going to see it later on. Well, I think that was the point with that one. I mean, that I, I think that he was a little bit too keen, Gareth Edwards, to cut away from a lot of this carnage throughout. And that was one of my slight little disappointments. But I think that one was, was very good. Because A, it was a great little gag. And B, obviously, the big fight was always meant to be San Francisco, not Honolulu. So if he'd have done it mm. all then... It would have it wouldn't have made the finale as powerful. So now, from a exactly. creative standpoint, he was absolutely right. Yeah, completely there. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's a very restrained approach to showing the monster fights because, mm. as Pacific Rim kind of proves at times, they they can drag on a little bit because you've got these big, slow lumbering things. Mm. Uh, interesting historical point: the the second Godzilla movie, Godzilla Raids again. There was actually an, in, an accident with the filming of that when they've got um, Godzilla fighting. I think it's Angerus, who's like this little sort of what, what walks on all fours is like this dinosaur and Ankylosaurus I think is, is based on mm. it's like a little canine hedgehoggy kind of thing <laughs> the fight sequences for that were accidentally sped up rather than slowed down to give them the kind of slow ponderous you know running up running at half speed sped up a little bit um, mm. effect that you normally get and the director thought that it looked nice and decided to keep it in these sort of quite fast moving things just jumping around but it didn't look right and it's one of the main reasons a lot of people overlook that film You've got to, these things, you know. I think Godzilla's clocked in at something like 350 foot tall in this film. Something that big's not going to move very fast. Not even the flying Muto is able to move that quickly. Mm. So there's got to be, as a result, the fights are going to seem quite slow and ponderous, and they've got to be built around like, like a like a bruising old boxer taking on a, a young buck and sort of yeah. decking him in the first couple of rounds. Yeah, he's got to have that kind of sense to it, rather than this sort of drawn out half hour smackdown, which I think would have just bored people. And I, and I, I can't see any of the other movies that Edwards makes if I hope he does get to make a couple more of these um, I can't see any of them being any different really mm. maybe sort of experimenting with how much monster action he shows and how he shows it a little bit because there's plenty of sequences in this where he still pulls the camera back a little bit mm. and where like just after Godzilla's taken care of the first Muto and then the building falls on him you, you, he pulls back as if you're watching that from inside an office building yeah. just um, a block down from the action and that happens quite a lot and it gives a real sense of which is the thing that Cloverfield nails so perfectly, and it's why Cloverfield is such a 
terrifying, intense film mm. that it is just happening right in front of you, and you're like, oh god, this is just giant thing. It's so big, I can't get away from it. But yeah. you just absolutely captivated by it and drawn to it at the same time. I think that was that was one of the biggest things he got right with this this film is that he he created such a sense of you know titan spectacle with with the, with these mon- especially the ending. I mean, the final com- confrontation in San Francisco. You know, it's you know stormy, dark clouds. It, it's that it's that trailer moment where all, where the Aaron Johnson and all the all the team are halo jumping down, and they they use they use the cue music from two thousand and one. You know that haunting, deathly yeah, chant. Yeah, really atonal choral, uh, yeah, rising note. Just terrifying, sort of yeah, rising note as as they see Godzilla just twatting this Muto, and it's just like, <laughs> that whole, it, it's goosebumps, it is a goosebumps it, yeah, moment. absolutely is. And it should That's be. completely be- the way to frame it. Yeah, it should be, because he's, he's such a, a force, a for- he has to be represented in that sort of dark, you know, storm cloudy way, and it, it was, I thought that was a, 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 amazing. I, 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 you know, I, I do have my issues with the film in places, but I think the sense of, of spectacle and gravitas that comes around Godzilla in this is, is phenomenal at times. It really is. And that, I was thrilled. Whenever he was on screen and whenever stuff was going down with him, I was thrilled. And that, you know, I think that's the key to making a good one, really. Yeah, there's a couple of moments where the monsters kind of rec- realise that there are things running around and kind of focus in on them a little bit more. There's there's the the, the beat where um, Aaron Johnson's just about got the the bomb onto the boat is pulling away from the harbour and looks up and suddenly like the Mama Muto is just looming over him yeah yeah just peering down at him or that great beat just after Godzilla's been um, floored by the falling building where he kind of looks up and see, see Aaron Johnson's the only guy on the street he just locks eyes with him for a second it's almost as if Godzilla's just noticing oh yeah there's people here for the first time <laughs> yes I remember like, yeah. having just like you know caused a tsunami and, and flooded up <laughs> on his way before they just haven't registered to him at this point. Yeah. And he makes that brief moment of eye contact with him. And that, that's the way to play him, that he's just distanced, like a step above the rest of us. He doesn't really notice that there are people around. All he's focused on is like big, stinky, smelly thing that I don't like is messing up my planet. Yeah. You know, the buildings are just things that he just happens to bump into on his way around. They're just, you know, they're, they're not, they're not really pinged off on his radar at that point. It's a quite a fascinating idea, really, isn't it? I mean, that that's one thing that really drew me in with with this is the way they the way they use Godzilla and the way I mean, this may be historical in terms of the character, but the whole mythic element of him in that he is this this giant beast representing you know in a, in a way like a protector of the earth, a natural protector of the earth, this this thing that is summoned up in order to restore balance, as Ken Watanabe always says throughout the film. He says it lots of times, and. It, it's fascin- It's a fascinating idea, you know, that this this creature that ostensibly you'd think was this rampaging monster, he's not really a monster at all. And that's the that's the point. I mean, the, the the end of that shows where they basically hail him as the protector, and is has this has this guy saved our city, you know, on the news. And it's like the point's being made that well, he's not he's not the villain Godzilla at all, really. No. Nope. You know, he's the good he's guy. The he is. He's the hero. He, 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 no, no, that's but, the point. He's not the hero or the villain. He's just—he's—he's he's just the guy in the middle. He's Switzerland. He's, <laughs> he's neutral. Yeah. Yeah, he is neutral. He doesn't care about the humans. He's not doing it to save them. He's doing it because he doesn't like the other monsters. That—that's—that's mm. that's his only motivation for getting involved with it. That—that's—and that's the thing that the, the Edwards movie nails. That again, he's more common with the the sort of the later two batches of Godzilla movies. That Godzilla's not there because he wants to save our planet. He's there because he's saving his planet. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice way of looking we're at just, it. Yeah. We're just microscopic organisms that happen to live on his world. Yeah. We're just like plankton as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Which is why he's got no motive in terms of, you know, once he's beaten the Mutos, he doesn't go around stomping us into oblivion. I mean, yeah, he's he's pretty much knackered by then. He's having a rest, but yeah, he's a bit of a kid. Then gets goes but out. he goes. He doesn't. He doesn't start trashing everything and rah, and all this. He's just he's at it. Then he's like, right, I'm done here. I'm off. And so it's that was great. And I, I as as that was happening, I thought because I, I I I thought he might have died. I thought he might be dead at the end. And then and then for him to wake up and just go, I, I thought that was great. Time. Yeah, yeah. Kill out three or four times, I think. But they wouldn't do that, obviously, for a for a modern day franchise. You know that that's not how it'd work now, isn't it? But I think I think for me, the only the, the reasons that I, I I think in my review I gave it about a three three and a half, so a ra- ranging around a seven, shading an eight. And I, I think I think for me the the main thing that that brought the film down was the fact that I think I think for a start I think they got their lead wrong. I think I mean Aaron Johnson can't act for Toffee anyway, and he's a, he's a wooden wooden actor, and he's he's, he's all right. He's, he's better than a Tobey Maguire kind of wooden, but he's uh, he was potentially they needed someone who was going to play like a rough soldier because it had to be someone who could get into the battle zone and, and go running around with it. But at the same time, you know, it maybe needed someone with a little bit more charisma. I yeah, think. he's got no grit. He's got no grit or swagger or anything. He's just a plank of wood. They, they were going to have um, Joseph Gordon Levitt. They asked him to do it. And he turned it down, which is a shame because I think he'd have been a much more, you know, charismatic presence. Would he have been convincing as a soldier? Though I don't think he would have done. He's, he's too little. It maybe, maybe, possibly. I think they were going Jake for that. Pinnacle. That's the kind of guy yeah. they could go for. Yeah, someone who can look a bit more kind of intense. Because Aaron Johnson's, he, he's got, he's too warm and boyish in the face to yeah. kind of pull off an intense soldier. He's, he was in shape for it, obviously, because of mm. just having caught the, the two Kickass movies, mm. but. Um, yeah, I, I do. I, I can. I understand that point. I kind of. I kind of wish actually that Brian Cranston had been the lead. I would. I would have been much happier to follow that character in a way around. And it's a. Sh- I think. I think he was. I understand why he, he. He was taken out the picture as early as he was because it was a thematic point about the father and son relationship and you know and Aaron Johnson being able to do what he never did you know, and get back to his family and 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 everything like that. I get that, but I, I tend to feel like. It marginalised the more interesting characters. I mean, Ken Watanabe, I think, was was, and Sally Hawkins as his assistant were relatively wasted as well. And I think, and he's, I mean, and you probably noticed, but his name was Serizawa, wasn't it? Um, yeah, as in Doctor Serizawa from the original from, movie. from the original movie, which I, I wouldn't have noted unless I'd watched the movie the day before. But then, so there's obviously a, 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 a I don't think it's a, a biological link. So I don't think that they're sequels, but like a, a connection there. And, I, and it, all he really did was spout exposition, and it felt like he. He had the potential to be even more of the kind of um, the, the the old. Is it Doctor Yamane from the old or something like that from the first film? Who's the the benevolent one saying we need we need to yeah, protect yeah. him? He he was ha- that kind of character, but he didn't seem to to gel enough with it. And I'd have been much more interested following those guys around than Aaron Johnson. Very forced. The script really forces him into places he needs to be to get the plot moving. You know. Oh. He's in Honolulu. Oh, a few soldiers go by. Oh, where are you going? Oh, uh, I need to get on the train. Cheers. So it, it's too it's too constructed in that way. Kind of, kind of, not sort of, not massively, but but a little bit. But it's you know you can argue kind of things that are just necessary plot beats against like really contrived things. I mean, the fact that it's stated quite early on that he's a bomb disposal expert means that if the creatures are after kind of you know nuclear warheads to get the radiation to feed um, their brood. 
um, then they're going to, like a guy who knows his way around bombs, especially ones that aren't going to be affected by their EMP charges, he's going to be quite a handy guy to have around, really. Yeah. I think the one thing that I, I picked up on is how does a, an explosives ordnance expert know how to do a professional level halo jump? <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> well, true. Because that, that's not really like a standard issue training thing, basically. That's true. But I just, I rolled with it. Well, the I see is... this film in a lot of ways as very much an experiment by Gareth Edwards, who, let's not forget, this is only his second film. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. Not, in no way like an experienced veteran of, of movie making, just to kind of get a feel for it, to not do anything too out of the box or too experimental, but to just sort of try and get a feel for things. I mean, if you, if you look back at Monsters, the two primary characters in that are fairly kind of, you know, thinly sketched out characters, really. A lot of their interaction and their, their character motivation and everything is kind of hinted at by the actors and stuff that they don't... Just like expression, micro-expressions mm. and other things that they don't really do or say at any points. So I think for this to be a big American blockbuster, it did need to be a bit more on the nose, which is exactly the same as the 98 Godzilla. In that one, you are following around a team of scientists and, and sort of civilian people. And I can see, like in later movies, Gareth Edwards coming up with different kinds of characters to interact with. Like, I think in, a, in one of the other ones, there's a big game hunter who wants to back himself for Godzilla or some mm. kind of monster that gets attracted to Godzilla. In the very weird Giant Monsters All Out Attack, which is weird enough just for its title, <laughs> that basically presents Godzilla and all the other monsters as like modern incarnations of Japanese mythical creatures and folklore and it's built around this reporter who does like her own version of like most haunted basically just following old myths and legends who wants to find out the truth behind Godzilla and all these other things who may or may not be figments of our imagination throughout the whole film it's, it's, it's a bit of a trippy one but um, yeah that's the kind of direction I can see future films going in and now that we've had this groundwork of kind of we always have your troubled scientist you always have your kind of young driven sort of more gung-ho kind of person you balance out those core personalities around the group I think I think that that was that was the biggest thing as well with me I think uh, in terms of visually what he does and from a directorial standpoint I think I think he it was really good you know I, I've got no issues really with anything that Gareth Edwards himself did in terms of creating this world and, and the sense of awe and spectacle I thought he, I thought it was fantastic that moment when Godzilla is warming up for his first sort of atomic breath attack. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah, that was just so tremendous. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that I I didn't remember that he I'd forgotten actually, funnily enough, that he could do that. And so the moment that he just unleashes that, I I, I, I was and it, it's the way yeah, but it's the way he, he takes out the second Muto as well by just unleashing it into his face, <laughs> opening his jaw and just raw into his. I, I thought that was amazing. I just like, but it's, so things like that. Stunning. I just didn't care about people in the, in it. That that was that was the problem. I cared about Brian Cranston. I, I I cared about that that family relationship. I didn't care about the other one. I didn't care about Alan Taylor Johnson. I didn't care about Elizabeth Olsen or the kid. I just I wasn't invested. I was waiting when they were on screen. I was thinking, just go away. I just want us to focus on Godzilla. And it's not because I wanted more monster action. Because I agree with you. I think that that what what they gave us was enough. Because it makes those moments even more intense and powerful if, if you don't do it as much. Although, as I do say, I think he cuts away sometimes a little bit too much, but that was my, that's my only downside. I think, though, that I, for it to have been a great film for me, I would have been on the ground invested, driven by the character story as well, alongside everything else. And I think that's why yeah. I can't think of it in the same terms. However, I do, I do genuinely think that when I watch it again, I will, get, I will enjoy it even more. I really do. And I, and I, I tell you what, you, you're talking about Gareth Edwards doing another one. I, I think 
it, I think it's a surefire thing there'll be a sequel given this has made um, 200 million worldwide already in wow. in four days it's made uh, not something like 93 domestic and 103 globally it's the biggest ever monster movie opening ever excellent um, that's very good news yeah I think it's it's the expectations that a lot of people went into it with and I suppose like I said I'm, 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 a, I'm a massive Godzilla nerd anyway so I was bound to be more, more easily pleased with it but at the same time I think I got what he was trying to do with it pretty much straight away he wasn't trying to make anything that was high art he was trying to make something that was a little bit tongue in cheek but at the same time was like had more in common with the more recent Godzilla movies in terms of him being like a darker more amoral character but at the same time it's still you know people are just running around in the background while Godzilla turns up and takes care of something nasty looking Hmm. unfortunately guys the last three or four minutes of the conversation with Lee wrapping up the Godzilla review had to be deleted because of some horrible uh, feedback I think on the Skype line which meant it was all crackly and hard to distinguish so sadly that means Lee's awesome little goodbye and a thank you and a little bit of more of the wrap up has been lost this time round. so let me just say thanks to Lee for coming on again as I had done before and talking all things Godzilla and from both of us we hope you really enjoyed this monster special So that brings us to the end of another Black Hole Cinema, this time focusing, of course, on Godzilla, which I can't recommend enough you go and watch. I, As I say, I was torn on certain parts of it, but on the whole, it's a really, really, really good film. So don't let any negative press put you off, because it really is worth seeing. Next week, it'll be another special, actually, with uh, two guests, and I can confidently predict this one because it's already been recorded as of recording this. And that will be focusing on Marvel, on the films of Marvel. And not just the cinematic universe, but all the other Marvel movies around it to coincide with X-Men Days of Future Past, which of course premieres next week. And I'll be giving you a exclusive review of that as well. So look out for that one next time round. Follow Black Hole Cinema on Twitter at Black Hole Cinema. And check us out on Facebook, our Facebook page, Black Hole Cinema again. Easy as... Just follow us on there, get tweeting, get Facebooking, and if you've got any recommendations, anything you want to talk about, anything you want to say about what was in the podcast, please, please do. It would, It's always great to talk to people. And to anyone who is listening, thank you so much for downloading once again and continuing to give me a reason to do this. So have a great movie watching week, and I'll see you for a marvellous edition next week. See what I did there. Bye. <laughs>